Welcome to this special edition of our Global Dialogue Speakers Program. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm Tennessee World Affairs Council Vice President uh, Breck Walker, and our uh, President Patrick Ryan is not able to be with us today, so I'm substituting for him. Today we're following up on two conversations we've had with Ambassador John Cornblum on the Ukraine crisis. You can, you can find previous programs in this series in videos, transcript, and podcast in the webinar archive on tnwac.org. So uh, on to this important conversation and let me introduce the ambassador. Ambassador John C. Cornblum has a long record of service in the United States and Europe, both as a diplomat and as a businessman. He is recognized as an eminent expert on US-European political and economic relations, in particular in Central and Eastern Europe. He served as the US ambassador to Germany from 1997 to 2001. Before that, he occupied a number of high-level diplomatic posts, including US Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Special Envoy for the Dayton Peace Process, U.S. Ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Deputy U.S. Ambassador to NATO, and U.S. Minister and uh, Deputy Commandant of Forces in Divided Berlin. So Ambassador, thank you for joining us on the program mm -hmm. and giving us further insight into the crisis in, uh, in Ukraine. Now, uh, a lot has happened in the last seven days. Uh, Russia, as everyone knows, has invaded Ukraine to the surprise of many. The invasion has so far at least not gone as well as the Russians would have hoped, and Ukrainian resistance has been both uh, heroic and effective. The West and NATO seem to have come together in a way not seen since the Cold War with unprecedented sanctions and promises of upcoming military aid. And with few exceptions, the world has rallied to Ukraine's cause and Russia is becoming a pariah state. Even so, uh, Putin seems poised to double down and bring more military force to bear to achieve his objectives. Now, Ambassador, I have a lot of questions. Uh, I don't know if you would like to make some opening remarks first, uh, or I can go right into the questions, whichever you prefer. Um, thank you, Brett. Um, I think I'll just make a few couple short remarks. First, your summary uh, put together the issues which are facing us and the developments which are facing us better than anyone could, and it's certainly better than I could, and so I will stand by what you said. What that means is not that we are either hopeful about the outcome or we have a sense of hopelessness. We're sort of hanging in the middle. On the one hand, Ukraine, Ukrainian forces, and also notably the Ukrainian president has demonstrated a tremendous commitment to the future of their country, tremendous sense of leadership, both by the president and by the military officials. And also the population of Ukraine has come together in a way that many people wouldn't have thought would, be, would have been possible even two or three years ago. So the situation is not hopeless in any means, but it also has no clear outcome. And this is something which diplomats and military people, but also normal citizens find a totally unsatisfactory situation. Ukraine is holding out brilliantly and bravely, but Russia, as we know, has an immense amount of firepower that they can still put into the fight, and in particular, firepower which can be aimed at human beings. So the next few days 
are going to be very critical also from a humanitarian point of view. And I would urge everyone to keep their eyes on this part of it because Russia seems to be willing to, take, to, to, to uh, let out all stops and to do whatever they feel necessary or whatever President Putin feels necessary to bring Ukraine under their control. So the implications of this situation are immense. And I think maybe, Brad, you will go into them with your questions, so I won't go into a long discussion of them. But I think only that at the point that we've reached now, nearly a week after the events started, is, is not a point of hopelessness, but also not a point of hope. It's a point of dedication to make sure that we can somehow do our best in meeting the crisis, which is, after all, taking place in Ukraine, but as a real crisis for the Western world is in, is in addition. Thank you, sir. Well, let me start off, if I might, uh, with a question that is on uh, a lot of people's minds. Uh, Putin surprised a lot of folks in academia and diplomatic circles, and I think even the, even the media in invading Ukraine. And I think heretofore, most thought he was a really shrewd, calculating autocrat who in Georgia and Crimea, for example, bested the West in some sense. But now these experts wonder if he still is a rational actor, given his actions in Ukraine, that, that maybe he has an agenda that uh, is unhinged, maybe too strong, but uh, beyond the realm of rationality. And President Biden in his State of the Union speech said that Putin badly miscalculated. So. Ambassador, what is your take on what Putin's objectives are in the Ukraine right now? And is he following a game plan that, that might achieve those, those objectives in some sort of rational way from his perspective? Well, I think his objective, and I'm taking this mostly from what he has said and what he has done, his objective appears to be to restore Ukraine, not necessarily as a, as a constituent part of the Russian Federation, but as a part of the uh, neighborhood of the Russian Federation, which is wholly subordinate to Russia's interests and to Russia's direction. Uh, this has been a policy, a, a goal that uh, Putin has been pursuing. And even to be fair, even to, before Putin, the Yeltsin government was pursuing. And that is not to allow hostile states to develop on its periphery. And hostile in this sense doesn't mean states who wish to attack Russia militarily. Hostile means states who are dedicated to the West or dedicated to democracy or who provided an impression, an image to the Russian people, which he considers to be dangerous for his own political strength in Russia. So he began right after, this fact was not Putin, this was Yeltsin, right after the end of the Cold War, Russia began with a occupation of something which is called the West Bank of the Dniester River in Moldova. And I won't go into the details, but it's a small sliver of territory which Russia simply wouldn't vacate. And now, 30 years later, it is still considered officially to be part of Moldova, but in fact, it is under totally control of Russia. He also, Russia, again, before Putin, in my view, some people would disagree with me, but in my view, stimulated a conf conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan 
over a piece of territory which is called Nagorno-Karabakh. That conflict has been smoldering, sometimes more, sometimes less, also for 30 years almost. And Russia has not taken any real steps towards solving it because it's happy to have it. Uh, the, the, the strategy which is involved here is to embroil your neighboring countries into conflicts, which makes them, puts them off balance <clears throat> and what makes them de dependent upon Russian support. The third one was Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, which is a very pro-Western country. Uh, after Georgia was offered NATO membership in 2008, Putin seemed to decide he had to do something about it. So he invaded Georgia and took control of two minority uh, provinces, Southern Ossetia and uh, Abkhazia, which and Russia has kept control of them ever since. And as we know, in 2014, Russia grabbed control of Crimea and also established so-called liberation movements or whatever you wish to call it, Russian cultural movements in two provinces to the very east of Ukraine. So I think this has been a long-term strategy. Uh, so far, this is the first time that it has been so dramatic. And it, the fact that it is dramatic is, is a, a something to ponder in itself. Why has Putin taken this big risk to do this? But it essentially focuses on the feeling that Russia has had for many centuries, really, that it has to control its border regions and that uh, it's trying to do its best to control all of them. There was also even a purported or at least uh, beginnings of a coup in the uh, Republic of Kazakhstan a couple of weeks ago, which Russia sent troops in to control. So you can see that they are very sensitive about everything which is on their border and that Ukraine is the country which defines the Russian border, but also in many ways defines Russian identity. Uh, the uh, Honorable uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, former National Security Advisor, uh, once said that uh, he thought that without Ukraine, Russia could not claim to be an integral state and an empire. If that's the case, then Putin has de demonstrated with great energy and brutality that he wishes to bring Ukraine under his control. Well, in that regard, let me just uh, dig a touch deeper, if I may. Uh, in that regard, uh, is this war, from Putin's perspective, uh, about turning Ukraine into a neutral country, perhaps like Austria was through the Cold War, or is it about something more than that? You mentioned control. Is this a, is this a conquest, or is this an attempt by Putin to neutralize Ukraine as far as NATO is concerned, for example? Well, we were all asking ourselves that question, what did he really want to achieve? Interestingly enough, this current phase of crisis, which began in 2014, began when the president of Ukraine, who was considered to be, if not a puppet, certainly very sympathetic towards Russia's uh, goals, when he agreed to a relatively minor trade protocol with the European Union. Nothing to do with NATO, nothing to do with threats, nothing to do with, as he's calling them now, pressures on the Russian population, the Russian-speaking population, had to do with trade. And this got the Russians and Putin so excited that they, they, they forced the president of that time to uh, abrogate the 
protocol. This was such a dramatic step for the uh, Ukrainian population that a several month siege on the Maidan Square in, in, in um, Kiev began, which ended in the toppling of this president and elections for a new democratically elected president and made clear that Ukraine wanted to have a Western orientation. It was after that that, that Russia seized Crimea and came up with the idea that it had to do this to protect the Russian speaking population. And the fact is the population of Crimea was and is primarily Russian speaking, no question about that. So what his, now his goals are, what his next steps are, I don't think his goal is to incorporate Ukraine back into Russia, but I think his goal is to establish a puppet regime. There are some people who believe that that was his goal this last weekend. He thought he would make a race to Kiev, uh, topple the president, take him prisoner, or maybe even kill him. There's some talk of that. And then Ukraine would ask for Russian support, and then everything would be okay. Well, it didn't work out that way, because the Ukrainian people have no intention of living under Russian control. And they have put up a truly heroic fight against much bigger odds. And in, increasingly also, the Western world has become unified against the Russian actions. The other mistake that autocrats often make when dealing with democratic countries is to believe that the debate and even bickering which goes on among Western countries really means what they would do in case of a crisis. And I'm quite sure that Putin thought that the West was so uh, this unified and so uh, angry with each other that he could easily put something together without us doing very much. Instead, the West has come together extremely strongly. A, the most difficult uh, economic sanctions which have ever been levied, I think in the history of the post-war world anyway, is, have been levied. And uh, European countries, including Germany, which had always been very hesitant about getting involved militarily, even Germany has said it's going to step up its military contribution. So Putin has certainly miscalculated in two major areas. First, he thought he could take over Ukraine really rapidly. He couldn't. Secondly, he thought the West would be so deep in disagreement over this that he would be able to play us off against each other. That's not been the case. We've been very unified and very decisive in the steps that we've been taking. So he is facing a dilemma right now. And you notice that he, uh, sort of telegraphed to us the fact that he felt he was in a dilemma by saying, well, maybe he would have to resort also to nuclear weapons if possible. This sent a shock through everybody, including me, I might say. It bothers me very much when people say, when someone says that. But it shows that he feels very much on the defensive. It shows that he's not achieving his goals as much as he could, as quickly as he could. But it does not take away from the fact that he still has lots of military firepower that he could use. And you notice in the last couple of days, especially in the city of Kharkiv, the attack has no longer been to try to seize the city, but to try to destroy the city. And that, of course, is the most reprehensible, most condemnable thing that one could think that we, which would be done. And it's going to, we're going to have to see how it plays out and what role Russia is able to play in the world after this is over. Well, in, in that connection, let me ask this. I'm interested in how the West is calibrating its diplomacy now, uh, which you touched on. And 
I'm curious, in your mind, should the West take even more substantive actions in support of Ukraine, especially if Putin is pushing this to a more destructive uh, and uh, 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 dangerous war? Uh, if he does double down, should the West, uh, for example, Brett Stevens, who's the columnist for the New York Times, wrote an article yesterday suggesting that the West should establish an air corridor like the Berlin airlift to supply food to Kiev and and uh, and make a and can make a massive effort to supply weapons to Ukrainian partisans. Should the West do something more provocative, or is the risk of a wider war outside of Ukraine too too great for the West to really think about that? Well, that is the question which is being debated now in all Western capitals and in the Western press. Uh, as a matter of basic facts, I think hardly anyone would, on, on the Western side anyway, would disagree that it would be helpful and in, in fact, like critical for the West to do as much as it can to support Ukraine. The idea of an air corridor has come up. There's also the idea of a no-fly zone. Uh, there's uh, suggestions for uh, provision of, in, of increasingly more military goods. But also there are ideas, again, even of even deeper sanctions against Russia. In other words, there's a whole men menu of things which we could do. Uh, and I would myself, I ho would hope that we would in fact be considering all these things. The idea of a corridor, for example, strikes me as being something uh, which would be useful. The big problem is twofold. First, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And so we would have to reach a legal basis, shall we say, for, for being involved in, in Ukraine. We haven't always had a legal basis. NATO conducted a bombing of, of Serbia 20-some uh, years ago uh, without a UN mandate because the, the Russians and the Chinese had blocked it in the Security Council. So NATO has, in the, in the relatively recent past, operate on the basis without a UN mandate, but it's always better to have one. Secondly, however, comes the major issue. Once or if and once Russian and Western American or French or British or whatever forces started shooting at each other, are we in a war which could escalate into a nuclear exchange? This is the big peacemaker, which is always held there you know, for years we use the uh, abbreviation mutual assured destruction, which happens to come out as mad um, because we felt that nuclear weapons were there to ensure that there wouldn't be these kind of lower level local wars. But now we're in a situation where Russia, Russia has started one. The humanitarian aspects of this war are horrible already. The effect on the confidence of the Western world and on the structure and the peace in Europe at a time when the world is really uniting in a whole new kind of world order based on the digital world would be very uh, negative. And so it presents us with truly major issues, which I don't think anybody, certainly not me, but I think most anybody really has a clear answer to right now. Well, uh, let me pursue that just for a, a second to ask your opinion about this. As you mentioned, Putin has hinted at uh, possible uh, nuclear retaliation uh, as a response to Western opposition to the invasion. And uh, I guess he put his nuclear forces on some level of increased alert recently. In your mind, is this a negotiating strategy by Putin, kind of a chess move designed to 
to deter the West from direct intervention? Or is it evidence of some deeper instability on, on Putin's part? And more generally, how dangerous is the current situation from a wider world war perspective? Well, that's again, Brett, your questions are always those that nobody could answer. Um, that question is being uh, discussed all over the world right now. I'm sure it's being discussed in Beijing, for example. Another element we might talk about later is China and its role in this. Um, nobody's sure whether Putin is uh, totally in control of his faculties, as one politely says, or not. It's just he has done many things which would suggest to the normal observer that he's not in control of his faculties, but you can't tell. Putting the nuclear forces on alert was a dramatic step, but not necessarily a dangerous step. Nuclear forces are on alert all the time. That's one of the reasons they're there. We have, you know, there's a great big command center out in Colorado, which is there 24 hours a day. So I'm not too concerned about that. I am concerned about the fact that the that Putin may have defined goals for this operation, which he may not be able ever to uh, achieve. And at some point, if he feels starts to feel desperate, that he may reach for other kinds of weapons, or at least at least threaten us with other kinds of weapons. So, this probably I don't I don't think there's any question that this is the most dangerous situation that we have faced since World War II ended in 1945. There have been other crises over the years, but none of, none of them ever went to the very heart, not only of Western security, but of our civilizations as this one does. So how, uh, thank you for that. How, from a diplomatic perspective, how would you evaluate the Biden administration's handling of this crisis so far? Uh, I think they've done quite a good job. I could maybe disagree with some small things, but let's just take, for example, something which brought some criticism and even derision from some quarters in the United States and elsewhere. That was their decision going back two weeks ago or more to uh, publicize every intelligence conclusion they reached about what Putin's plans were. And already, at the beginning of February, they were already saying Putin is planning to invade Ukraine. Uh, I think they sometimes overdid it because they actually said this Monday he's going to invade Ukraine, then he didn't do it. And so people here in Germany, I was on a couple of TV shows where people said, well, the Americans are just lying to us. And I said, well, no, we're not lying to you. We're just not able to pinpoint when something's going to happen. But in any case, I think that was and turned out to be a very good strategy because it, it took away from Putin the, uh, the uh, tool of surprise. It also made it clear that he had to justify what he was doing more than if it was just a quiet thing. So I personally think that was a good strategy. I think the, re the administration has worked pretty hard to get uh, military goods and equipment and economic support. I think myself that the sanctions debate, it turned out to be a successful one, but it was conducted a little bit too relaxed fashion and it didn't focus really on the real needs. And even today, the very controversial question of the SWIFT system, the international payment system, which some banks have been, uh, some Russian banks have been uh, removed from, shall we say, 
two of the most strategic Russian banks, the Sparebank and the uh, Gazprom Bank, which are the banks which finance Russian gas and oil sales to the West, are still in the SWIFT system. So in effect, the West is tolerating the passing of funds to Russia, which helps them finance this war, because we have kept these two banks in the SWIFT system. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. This is a very difficult topic. But I think that we could have been a bit more or quite a bit more de decisive on things like that. OK. And let me just uh, mention, because I forgot to mention at the top, that at the, for all of our viewers on this, uh, there's a Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom screen. And uh, for the last five or 10 minutes, we're going to take audience questions, if you don't mind, Ambassador. And anybody who wants to submit those questions, please go ahead and do so uh, if you haven't already. And we'll get to those uh, shortly. Uh, as a former ambassador to Germany, and I know you probably talked about this on uh, a 10WAC program that you were on uh, several days ago, but let me ask you about the German response. You mentioned at the top, but the German government went from arguably kind of a tepid perspective on things when uh, the invasion just got underway to arguably a ferocious uh, response in the, in the space of just a few days, halting the Nord Stream pipeline promising to send weapons to Ukraine and vowing to increase defense spending to 2% of uh, GDP. You know, a headline in the Washington Post a couple of days ago said that Russia may conquer Ukraine, but it has definitely lost Germany. So do you agree with that? And could you give us some insight into what prompted what at least I saw as a huge change of direction by the German government? Well, first you're right, it is a huge change of direction. And it is a change of direction, which has been is change of a direction, which has been criticized also from the United States over the past really almost 20 years. But there is a deep sense within Germany that it is uh, essential for if Europe is going to be the peaceful democratic place that it hopes it to be, it needs to incorporate at least workable relations with Russia, maybe not friendly. I mean, not positive, but at least workable. And so the Germans have gone out of their way to uh, try and achieve these relations, mostly by, this, by human contact, but also by trade. Uh, Putin uh, broke things so, broke so far out of the framework of the acceptable that this German approach became untenable. And on Sunday, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz gave a very, as you said, very dramatic, very tough speech in which he condemned Russia, expanded German defense budget, uh, said Germany would be sending military goods to Ukraine, et cetera. This was sold by him as a major change of direction and taken up by many people in the press, but also the, the commentators and the think tanks and everything as a total change of, shall we say, culture in Germany. This is where I would uh, beg to use my experience, which is more than 50 years, to say that this is not necessarily the case. What is the case is that push, Putin pushed Germany and another number of other countries simply beyond the ability, their ability to, uh, to consider him an acceptable discussion partner and enter the military range. And Schultz did a very good job of defining this, of adding substance to it. But at the same time, what this does, of course, 
within, it's only been three months since the new government took place in the context of a new government, which said it was gonna focus on the environment, on COVID and on social reorganization, shall we say, social melting, uh, that this essentially destroys the other goals of the government. And that's not going to be easy to sell to lots of people. All you have to do is notice the different uh, approaches to governing of the different wings of the Democratic Party to see the kind of situation that Mr. Schultz is facing. He has a party which is, if anything, even more divided than the Democratic Party in the United States is. So it's, it's certainly not a new era. It's a German ch chancellor, a man of great experience and also of courage, taking a very, very important step which breaks the mold of some of the steps in the past. But it doesn't mean that the reasons for the reticent behavior before have disappeared. And it doesn't mean that all of a sudden Germany is a different society. None of us changed that much overnight. Well, is, is that to say, I mean, what is your, or, uh, however this resolves itself, and maybe it depends on, of course, exactly how, uh, what the resolution is, but are we likely entering in the West, likely entering into kind of a new Cold War once this particular crisis is over that, uh, that will uh, change the security structures uh, and the way the West in general unify the West perhaps more to have a more singular response to diplomacy with Russia and so forth? Is a new Cold War on the horizon or can this resolve itself and we can get back to business as usual, so to speak? Well, of course, at the moment, we're in the midst of a hot war. And so the security structures, which I took part in the negotiation of 25 years ago, have more or less now been put out of force. They're not really functioning anymore. Russia is disobeyed, broken, rejected just about every principle which we agreed 25 years ago and has started a war. So A, point A, there is no security structure right now other than to try and halt the Russian ex, uh, ex, uh, invasion and to return things to a peaceful state. That's point one. Point two is the relationship between the West and Russia is so complex and in many ways so important that we're gonna have to come to some kind of terms, some kind of if, if nothing more than an agreement to disagree after this is over. Russia, as um, uh, many people have pointed out, is not a, in, the, in its, either its military strength or its economy, is not a major power, but it is a major geographic power. And it is a major, shall we say, structural power. Because we've seen now with the uh, invasion of Ukraine, but we saw the other examples I presented in my comments at the beginning, that, that Russia can take this really very low-cost steps, low-cost economically, but also politically, and mess things up quite considerably, as it has done in Georgia or in Ukraine or in Armenia or in Moldova. And so it is a, a hostile Russia is for us a very complicated and, and difficult thing. We can't really live with a hostile Russia. There has to be some kind of, as I said, at least agreement not to fight each other with Russia and hopefully a much more active security structure. 
The other issue which is pounding down the road, well, there are two of them. I'll leave aside the, the pandemic for a moment, but there are two others which are really just racing down the road at us. One of them is uh, climate change, where Russia is not, again, a major central part of the problem, but China is. And China and Russia are trying, it seems to me, to form an anti-democratic bloc in the world. So being able to deal with Russia is also a reason or a contribution to being able to deal with China. And the second big team of horses racing down the road towards us is whatever we call digitization or globalization or the new digital world, whatever term you want to put on it. The entire global structure is being changed because of the forward advance of the digital world. And one, for example, simple but very dramatic notice of this came at Christmas this year when problems, blockades, blockages caused mostly by the COVID problem and not by Russia or anybody else tended to interrupt something called global supply chains, which nobody really had ever heard of before that. But anybody who works in an industrial company or who works in an internet supplier, they know exactly what global supply chains are. You know, American car factories stopped making cars because they couldn't get chips because the, because the uh, supply chains were broken. So we are facing a whole new kind of world with new kinds of issues. How do we keep global supply chains going? Who is going to be the ones who decides what the programming language is of the global supply chains? Uh, which territories are going to be uh, affected by this and which are not? And this is where Europe becomes extremely important to the United States, not necessarily as a territory, but as an economy, a culture, and a philosophical partner. Because we're going to need all the strength we have in order to make sure that the digital age is also a democratic age. And in no way can the United States do it by itself. And in no way can the United States uh, ignore the existence and ignore the support of a territory of 500 million people, which is the home territory for still most of our residents, which is the foundation of American culture, but also is in a very close economic and security relationship with the United States. So digitalization and globalization brings Europe not further from us as some people are arguing, but closer to us because everything that happens in Silicon Valley is registered in Europe, also in China, by the way, almost in milliseconds after it happens. And so this is a, a whole new situation that we're facing. So you're asking, can we find some new structure to put it all together? I think we can, but it's not gonna look like the old structure. And this, I'm spending some time on this because I think a lot of people think you just try and put the old structure together and it's gonna to be fine. No, it's not gonna be fine. We have to come up with a whole new concept of what it means to be harmonious with other countries, both those who are on our side and, both, and those who are not than we've had over the past 30 years. Well, in, in, in terms of coming up with that new structure, uh... I guess I don't mean a silver lining, I guess, but uh, uh, the, the war in Ukraine does seem to have revitalized NATO. 
uh, in a way that we haven't seen in some time uh, from a cooperative standpoint and from a defense spending standpoint uh, and others. Uh, uh, do you see that uh, playing a mean, do you see NATO playing a more meaningful role over the next 10 years than it has over the last 10 years in terms of putting this kind of structure together? Well, I think it will, but it's not just NATO. I think that's the, the point I was trying to make is that, in fact, this is a, shall we say, a whole world concept that we're going to have to be dealing with right now, which is even more difficult. But I think that your point is very, very important because the fact is that in the, shall we say, 10 years before now, back to 2010, somewhere there, Western countries were in fact drifting along on the ideas, the, uh, the, the fuel, the, uh, the structures of the past. And we weren't in fact taking account either of a country like Russia, which increasingly made clear to us that it was not happy in the new structures or what the new, new uh, kinds of relationships themselves should be. Both the United States and Europe were hanging on to their existing ideas and there wasn't, increasingly, there wasn't really much productive discussion between the United States and Europe. And increasingly, we weren't coming up to the answer, to, with answers to the questions which were being posed. So you, I, your hesitation when you ask the question makes the point. When you're in the middle of a truly brutal and murderous war, it's hard to say this has been an advantage to us. But at the same time, people are shaken awake by events such as Pearl Harbor in 1941 or the World Trade Center in, in 2001. It just shook everybody awake uh, and uh, led to a major changes in the way the world was structured and the way the world was handled. And I think this is another one of those events. Uh, former, the, the a prime minister of the United Kingdom back about 50 years when asked what kind of theories did he think were necessary to uh, understand what was going on in the world, he said, no theories, my young man, it's events that make the difference, it's events. And so we have some events right now, and these events are going to be major changing events. They're going to change the way we see the world, the way we behave in the world in a very dramatic way. We can't yet define what that's going to be, but it's, it's, you can be sure that five years from now, the world won't look the way it does today. Well, thank you. Well, let me ask two other, two more questions, and then we'll turn to some questions in the uh, audience queue, and we do have some. But uh, to get to China that you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, uh, it seems like in some sense, China's trying to sit on the fence, uh, publicly at least, that it's not criticizing yeah. Russia directly, that, uh, but it's not supporting the invasion uh, either. So what do you think the Chinese leaders really think about Russian actions in Ukraine and does, this, does the outcome of this crisis at all influence China's perspective on Taiwan? Well, I think they're pretty unhappy. They've, they've, they've made clear that they're unhappy. They, these are, you know, sometimes diplomats are accused of spending too much time on nuances, but sometimes nuances are important. And for example, after the very dramatic discussion of the Russian invasion in the UN Security Council last week, uh, the United States introduced a resolution. Russia voted against it. Normally, China would have voted against it also, but it didn't. Instead, it, it abstained. Now, you have to be 
a pretty stripy pants diplomat, I suppose, to understand the, the extreme importance of the difference between a no and an abstention. But in this case, the abstention meant that China was not supporting Russia's position. It was not blocking it either. It was not voting in favor. The vote, by the way, was more or less meaningless because Russia had already uh, uh, exercised its veto, so nothing was going to happen. But it was very important to see how China was going to react. And China reacted not with support, not with rejection, but with abstention. And that is in the bizarre world of diplomacy, it was a very important point. So China's not happy. I can see why China wouldn't be happy. In the first place, China had a, has or did have quite a major investment in Ukraine. There were something like 600 Chinese students there who are now, by the way, apparently having quite a bit of trouble because people are identifying them with the Russians. Uh, it is selling lots of its goods to Ukraine. It was trying very hard to sell its concept of a Belt Road to Ukraine. So, and that's just, just Ukraine, but what the Chinese, are, I think, are probably really worried about is that their whole idea that is important to China of non-intervention in internal affairs, in its internal affairs, is being put in question by the Russians. Okay, thank you. Um, well, this is my last question, and then we'll turn to some audience questions. And this is sort of uh, asking you to put on your, your uh, prognosticator hat. Uh, but uh, Thomas Friedman, the Times, the New York Times columnist, yesterday or today said that he saw three possible outcomes of this crisis. One is that there would be an intensifying, intensifying war and conquest of Ukraine, uh, and that in some sense, uh, Putin would effectively be able to establish uh, some sort of puppet government there with, with obviously uncertain consequences for the West in terms of supporting uh, resistance movements and so forth, but that was one. The second was a compromise piece centered on the ongo ongoing neutrality uh, of Ukraine. And the third was, in his view, the overthrow of Putin and the destruction of his regime because uh, of, of uh, rising and significant protest at home and leadership uh, deciding that Putin has uh, uh, miscalculated here in a huge way and Russia needs to go a different direction. What do you think is going to, what is the most likely outcome here in your mind? Well, it's hard to say that until you know what the military outcome is. And my hope is, and I think there's, there's a realistic reason to have this hope, that the Ukrainians, with their own courage, but with the increasing amount of military uh, aid that they're getting from the West, will be able to sort of fight the Russians to a stalemate and what the Russians then have to somehow find a way of getting out through a negotiated settlement. Now, the question of how to negotiate such settlement is very difficult. It's another one of these things which go into many layers of diplomatic uh, nuances. But uh, the basic point which I would make is that based on Russia's existing positions, there is very little that the West could do in the core issues which are facing us to meet Russian needs. We're not going to agree that, that Ukraine should never be a member of NATO. We're not going to agree that a country has the right to invade another country if it doesn't like its policies. We're not going to agree that there shouldn't be uh, freedom of speech and, uh, and, uh, and uh, elections in countries. 
In other words, there's a whole series of principles which were set up in the Helsinki uh, process and reaffirmed in the, de the Declaration of uh, Paris in 1990, which we simply won't give on. But they seem also to be the principles that Russia won't accept anymore either. So we, we need to find a way of getting around that basic point and at a, at a minimum, as I said earlier, to agree to disagree on the basic principles and to come up then with some workable uh, reasons to stop fighting and trying to work with each other again. There are a number of areas where this could be done. Arms control is a very important one. Uh, also, economic relations are another. But also, there are new issues such as uh, the, the, uh, the COVID uh, of treatment of digital uh, equipment and digital relationships and everything, which is already a very big issue in the world. Uh, the, the negotiating structure could be expanded beyond the basic principles of international relations, which we agreed to uh, now over 30 years ago. So I think there is room for negotiation. That's what diplomats live from. They're trying to find something to negotiate about. And I think there is room for negotiation. But right now, it's very hard to figure out even how you would start it. The Russians did suggest that they would be willing to talk with Ukraine about stopping the fighting. But of course, as we expected, when they, they had one meeting so far, they did agree to have a second one. That was the only good outcome of the first one. The Russian positions were so unacceptable that the Ukrainians couldn't accept any of them. But at least out of that meeting came an agreement to hold a second one. And sometimes that amount of movement is uh, worthwhile taking account of. Thank you. Well, that, that, that wraps up my questions pretty much. And uh, if it's okay, if you have a few more minutes, uh, sure. Ambassador, I would uh, take you to the audience's questions. Uh, the first one is from Dr. Uh, Winifred Schmitz, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And uh, the question is, why did US decision makers not take the comments of George Kennan in 1997 Ray, uh, about NATO expansion uh, and the speech of uh, Putin in 2000 seven at the Munich conference, seriously, why was it a mistake uh, for NATO to push as far as it pushed into Eastern Europe in expanding its membership relative to the crisis that we're facing today? Well, I was one of the people who made those decisions. <laughs> and I was one of the people who debated those things, including with George Kennan in those years. The reason we did not take George Kennan's advice is because he was wrong. Uh, at that point in, in history, it was essential for the Western democratic world that NATO expand into Central Europe to make sure that the, that the European countries who had suffered so much, both from the Nazis and from the Soviet communists, were given a chance to have a democratic future. And had we not taken them into NATO and the European Union, you would just have to go back to the behavior that I described as Russia before the Putin era to say that Russia is an inherently expansive country. Russia is also a country which feels it has to dominate its neighbors. And so what expanding NATO did was to re remove that temptation from Russia. And all the way up to the Russian border, there are now countries who are part of the Western world who enjoy the, the, uh, the, the advantages of a democratic society and who enjoy the advantages of the protection of NATO in particular the United States. So George Kennan, who I won't make too many comments on him, but just as quite often in his career, by the way, he was wrong about things. 
And on this one, he was not only wrong, he was very wrong. Thank you. Well, another question we have from uh, Jack McCall is, uh, one of the four, he asked, one of the four stated policy bases for Russia's use of nuclear weapons is when, quote, the very existence of the, uh, of, of, uh, the Russian state is threatened. And in light of the views of Russia's leaders as to what a hostile neighbor nation looks like, as you mentioned earlier, does that outlook, does that policy outlook increase the risk of Putin determining that he has a policy basis for launching nuclear weapons? That's a very good question. I think, of course, everything is in the details and is in the details of the, of the definition. Now, for, for virtually the entire period of the post-war era, this um, definition of the existence of the state meant really a military threat and not a social or economic threat. And, uh, and so that's um, the, the reason that was the, those were the, the principles upon which this stuff was always based. What Putin seems to have done was to expand this, def this definition of the threat to the existence of the country also to a political philosophical one. The only threat that Ukraine ever exerted on Russia or to this day exerts on Russia is one that seems to be very important to, uh, to Putin. And that is that it pre presents a democratic alternative for itself, but also for Russia. And so from his point of view, that may be threatening the existence of the state. From yours and mine point of view, it is in fact offering Russia the hope of becoming a democracy. So we're at this point where even these basic principles of war and peace are open to debate. And if you add the digital aspect that I mentioned a minute ago, you talk about things which are called, you know, crypto wars, uh, messing with people's power systems and everything. Uh, but even the definition of warfare has changed dramatically. So it's very difficult now simply to say, this is, this is war, this is not war, this is peace, this is not peace, because there are so many nuances and so many new tools which could be used, which we can't even really very well def define right now. Okay, well, a couple, thank you. A, a couple of our uh, attendees have asked, you mentioned uh, China's response and gave us your insights into that. What about India, who also seems to be uh, a bit of a fence sitter here? Uh, India always was a fence sitter. Uh, back in the 1950s, uh, the United States and India had many, um, shall we say, unfriendly discussions over what appeared to us to be their support of uh, Soviet uh, expansionism, et cetera, et cetera. India, in the whole digital world now, India has taken an interesting um, position. Uh, you may notice that it hasn't really become one of the great internet suppliers. It has not, there's no Indian Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. And the Indians have said that they don't feel that it's part of their national identity to, to enter this competition, which is essentially a competition between the United States and China. Also, of course, India does not have the most positively democratic government of any country on earth. And so uh, some of it may feel that, the, 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 that the, its own government is not certain how it wishes to behave in such a controversy. And maybe it feels it's better served supporting the Soviet, the Russian view, I'm not sure. But India is, of course, 
a country with more people than China has. Its population is younger than China's. China's is becoming a geriatric society where India has very many young people. And so it is um, a very important factor in the world. And right now it has sort of kept itself out of these debates. Maybe that's the best thing for them to be doing, but it's certainly a country which we need to take very seriously. Great. Well, I think we have time for, for two more questions, uh, Ambassador, if, if, uh, if your sure. time permits. Um, we have a couple of questions on whether, as a matter of uh, international law, uh, the war in the Ukraine and Putin's approach there, is it, is it uh, approaching war crime status? Is there, a, is there a, uh, I guess, is there a, a, is this something that's going to be discussed as a war crime after things settle down a bit? Well, I can only give you my personal view here. I certainly hope it will be, because uh, this is an uncalled for attack. It is attack on human beings. The Russians keep trying to say that it's not, that they're not targeting civilian targets, they're not targeting people, but the fact is they are. If there is ever an example of the criminal use of force uh, against a neighboring people, uh, this war in uh, Ukraine is it. So I certainly hope that there will be uh, war crimes uh, action uh, and that it is taken on the basis of the uh, procedures of one of the international courts or various ones which could be used for this and that they are not necessarily needed to be done by governments because we go back to our last question the major governments involved the United States and the Europeans need to be negotiating with the same person that other people are maybe calling a war criminal this is again is one of those difficult areas of diplomacy where you sometimes have to deal with a person who you self consider to be a criminal. This is what we did in Bosnia, how we got peace in Bosnia was dealing with Milosevic, who we, who later was in fact on his way to being convicted as a war criminal. He died of a heart attack instead, which was perhaps the humane thing for him to be doing, but uh, he would have been convicted quite severely as a war criminal. So yes, I think all of the criteria Someone might look at the at the documents and say I've missed something, but I I personally think all the criteria for considering this to be a war crime are there. Thank you. Well, then the last question we have concerns uh, protest going on, public protest going on in Russia. And while at least in my opinion, it's difficult to determine exactly what the magnitude of that is. I mean, clearly it's something that Putin is worried about because he's shutting down television stations and has. Uh, exercise quite a bit of control over information dissemination, but do you think, are you, I guess I'd ask it this way, uh, do you anticipate uh, growing protest uh, by the Russian uh, citizenry? And I guess related to that, and back to Thomas Friedman's comment, uh, is there some risk here in your opinion to Putin's regime? I mean, do you think that, that, that he might be uh, overthrown as a result of uh, these actions, I guess, depending upon what happens a little bit in the future? Well, um, it, again, this is one of these things which is hard to say. I think that um, there are public demonstrations going on in Russia, but they are still relatively limited. There still are some relatively honest polling operations in Russia, companies that do polls. I saw one yesterday which said that 70% of the Russian people asked, the people asked, not the Russian people, but the people asked in the poll supported Putin. 
Uh, I personally don't think that uh, our strategy can be based on the, on the hope that the Russian population will rise up against Putin. That's my personal view. Other people would disagree with that, but I just don't think that's a possibility. Not because there might not be a lot of dissatisfaction there, but because uh, the media are so controlled in Russia and the freedom of assembly is so interrupted by heavily armed police forces that it'll be very difficult for a real protest movement to, uh, to start. And uh, uh, Putin feels that he is uh, shielded from such things anyway. The Western strategy is to increase the economic pain in Russia as much as possible in the hope that this economic pain also extends to some people who do have influence, the economic uh, leadership, the, the political leadership, and that some pressure might be put on, on Putin to uh, at least pull back and to moderate his behavior. But so far, there's no scene of that, no sign of that rather. So I think that it's gonna be very difficult to, I personally would not count on that kind of support for moderating behavior or entering, ending the crisis. Well, thank you very much. And uh, before I close us out, uh, are there any ending remarks, concluding remarks that you would like to make? No problem if not, but I uh, wanted to well, give you the floor. I would floor just say that what we're trying to do, I saw one of your listeners here called uh, economic sanctions an immoral policy, but I think uh, destroying a neighboring country is an even more immoral policy. And uh, what we're trying to do, the West is trying to do is to maintain the uh, independence and sovereignty of Ukraine under its freely elected government to stop the killing, the, the thousands of people who are being killed in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Ukraine, and also to somehow to restore a sense of order in this part of the world, which as I said, is important to us for many, many uh, reasons which have little to do either with Russia or Ukraine. Well, thank you. Well, Ambassador, it's been my pleasure to get to moderate uh, this uh, session today. Thank also, you. Fred. Thank you so much for uh, your time and your remarks. And I'm sure we're getting a lot of comments coming in saying how uh, worthwhile this was and how interesting and, and uh, learning a little well, bit more about uh, the history that I, got us My here. great pleasure. As you know, I am a resident of Nashville and a very proud resident of Nashville. And I was, I was very happy to be able to speak to the World Affairs Council. Well, we look forward to seeing you next time you're in town. And again, many, many thanks. My, my pleasure. That concludes the session today. Thank you for, uh, to everyone for uh, attending. And we'll, we'll look forward to the next uh, Global Dialogue session uh, uh, down the road. Thank you so much.